friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. We address the issues that interest you, puzzle you, and flame you in the hope that we can bring some clarity, even to the darkest corners. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or you can catch the encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we have an enlightening show for you today. We'll be speaking with our dear friend Carrie Gress later in the hour about an insightful piece she wrote recently at The Federalist about motherhood. But first, my dear friend and colleague at the Catholic Association, Maureen Ferguson, is here with me as co-hostess, and we'll be talking to Leah Labresco. You may have heard of her powerful conversion story, From Atheism to Catholicism, in her book, Arriving at Amen, Seven Catholic Prayers That Even I Can Offer. She also recently had a fellowship at The Word on Fire with Bishop Barron. But today we invited her to discuss the Mississippi abortion ban case that will be heard by the Supreme Court in the fall, which revolves around a 15-week abortion ban. Leah wrote a very powerful op-ed in the New York Times entitled, Why the Supreme Court Should Reset the Terms of the Abortion Debate, and she's here to discuss it with us today. Welcome to the show, Leah. Thank you so much for having me on. Leah, your piece in the New York Times was excellent. I'm so glad that you have such a great uh, platform as the New York Times. There are so many people reading that that uh, publication that don't really ever begin to understand the debate from our perspective, from the perspective of people who have a real, a real informed understanding uh, for the dignity of the unborn in a, in a way that really colors all the political and cultural decisions that we make. What were you trying to get through on this piece, what what was different about your approach that you were hoping that people would understand? Well, I think part of the thing is that a lot of folks are in favor of Roe v. Wade without really understanding the implications of the decision or the rules it sets. So when you poll Americans, and it's, it's a big mess polling on abortion, but if you poll about do you support Roe v. Wade, you get strong majorities supporting it. And when you ask about what Roe v. Wade actually allows, you know, you don't find those same majorities supporting what the decision enables as they do support the decision in the abstract. Mm-hmm. And what I wanted to do was really drill in on one of those kind of spots of tension between people who say they support Roe, but really don't when they look more closely at it, which is the viability standard that Roe set and that the Supreme Court is primed to re-examine this coming year in the case uh, Dobbs. Because when we talk about viability, we talk as if this is some objective measure that's you know, always true, it's scientific, it's trusting experts. But viability keeps changing all the time depending on where our medicine is it gets earlier and earlier and it depends kind of based on how much you can pay for in services and i don't think anyone is really in favor of a standard that says poor people's children acquire their rights later than people who can afford a better hospital. And also geography, right? I mean, people who are far away from uh, a big, important medical center and people who live near one, they get different kinds of care, different levels of care and viability shifts. Absolutely. You know, there are children who are born at one hospital that doesn't have a very highly rated NICU capacity you know, who might not make it if they're born there, but would make it if they were born at a different hospital. There's no real basis for saying that there's a constitutional difference between those children. You know, it's not as though one of them has human dignity and their one doesn't because there's a less advanced incubator in their hospital. 
So it kind of points to the fact that there there isn't some magical process that happens between conception and birth where we can say this is where children acquire dignity or rights. And I was hoping to have readers kind of sit with that discomfort if there's someone who's a strong supporter of abortion and have been kind of counting on the idea that there there is some kind of expert line you can draw. And you point out that as viability uh, co- goes uh, more and more deeply into the into the second trimester and then it's conceivable that viability could go into the first trimester, right, with things like artificial wombs, you point out that that change in viability makes it um, makes it more and more likely that the state will have to start defending these babies if we keep using the viability standard. And people who are pro-abortion are going to be, they're not going to be happy with that standard anyway, because they put more weight on the woman's right to choose. Exactly. You, know, that you can already see some you know, science being explored around artificial wounds, which, to be honest, I don't think are coming anytime soon. I think it's a really tricky problem and that a lot of people working on it underestimate how gloriously and precisely made a woman's body is to sustain a baby. But even the hypothetical discussion of artificial wounds and moving viability earlier means that medicine that can save babies is taken as a threat to women, because as long as the Supreme Court defines abortion rights by that moment where a baby might be able to make it, then anything we do to get better at saving babies is going to necessarily constrain when women get, can get an abortion. So, of course, the answer is not to save babies less so that pro-choice <laughs> people can can feel more comfortable about um, women's choices and, and deeper into their pregnancies. The answer is to rethink that viability standard of, about what it, what it says to us about the way we balance different rights between children and their mothers. Exactly. You know, and I think the one of the biggest areas for progress is reassuring people that this isn't a zero sum game. You know, that there there are real moments where it can feel, you know, tricky to support both women and children at the same time. And we have to make a credible promise to do both so that people are less afraid that supporting babies means shortchanging women. Leah, that was one of the things I loved so much about your piece that I feel like a lot of pro life voices are very focused on reversing Roe versus Wade. And you talk in this piece about rethinking Roe versus Wade. And it seems you're thinking about the bigger picture of how society can care for pregnant mothers in vulnerable situations. And you say this is an opportunity to have a whole new conversation about how we care for the dignity of mothers and their children. So can you elaborate on that point a little bit? I think part of the challenge is for folks who think of themselves as pro-choice, who want to take care of women, and who think, I don't think wrongly, that we live in a society that's very hostile to people who are vulnerable. It's hostile to babies, as pro-lifers know, but it's hostile to mothers as their needs get more complicated. So, you know, it can be hard to to imagine a place where women are really supported. And I think that leads to a fearfulness that says it's impossible for women to not have the option of abortion because we know we live in a world that's hostile to women. You know, women need some way of defending themselves. And I really want to kind of challenge people to think about what the prices of that form of defense. I think a lot of folks aren't really comfortable with the growth standard as it exists, and they have to think about what else might they be comfortable with, or does that change how they feel about being pro-life at all? Mm -hmm. And then I think it's really on the pro-life movement to show that a different world is possible, and to push back against some of the misogyny in our culture or the hostility towards the needs of pregnant women. Thinking about just women who go back to work, women who were never considering abortion, two weeks after their baby is born, that's not a culture that's defending the dignity of women or the baby. They need each Mm -hmm. other still. So really, really looking at neediness as a thing that is part of human life and doesn't undermine
undermine our dignity. I'd love to elicit your thoughts more on that in just a minute. But you talk about how with abortion being currently governed by this viability standard, that it really pits women and babies against each other. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, you know, it really says that the baby is growing in rights and the woman is you know, losing options as the baby gets stronger. And anything we do that lets us do a better job at taking care of the baby necessarily means a woman's options narrow. And I think I think that is kind of inhumane and, and crazy. I think, it, you know, the more people like pause and take a breath away from their habitual discussions about abortion, the more saying every breakthrough to take care of premature babies, you know, every time a baby survives when they're very young, automatically changes the legal calculus for women on abortion. That sounds pretty wild, right? Like, that doesn't sound like the way you want to set up your laws. So I mm-hmm. think part of the challenge is, you know, not arguing just in terms of you know, well, you know, babies are viable at this age and that is what gives them dignity, which, you know, the pro-life movement can fall into to say like a baby has survived at this age. So all 20 week babies are real people because sometimes they make it versus no one is just totally viable on their own. There's not a magical thing that happens for babies. There's not a magical thing that happens for grownups. You know, most of us will need support from others at some point in our life to be viable to live, you know, whether that's when we're very old and need a lot more care and support or again, returning to the way women are children are similar when you're pregnant and you need more support from people around you and again more support than most women get now but really yeah. want to focus on the dignity of needing support you know rather than saying when you graduate from that thing you're a person but leah this applies to our society in general we we live in a we live in a culture that prizes um, autonomy above all things and looks down on dependence no matter the age of the person uh, if a person's dependent their value drastically drops and I think we'll never have a fully pro-life culture until we get beyond that narrow view of what it means to be a person. You know, I loved O. Carter Sneed's new book, What It Means to Be Human. Because again, you often hear the argument for the dignity of a child made by how similar they are to a grown-up. You know, the baby has fingers and toes like a real person, and therefore they deserve protection. But Sneed says, you know, babies are really vulnerable and they need a lot of support. You know, they're not autonomous and that's all right. And then he analogizes grown people to babies rather than the other way around and says and similarly a pregnant woman needs more from the people around them she's not the same as an unencumbered individual and she deserves more just like the baby does the baby deserves help the mom deserves help anyone who's vulnerable deserves help they're not less than they need more and that's okay if you're just tuning in you're listening to conversations with consequences on ewtn radio I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we're talking with author and Catholic convert Leah Libresco, along with my co-host Maureen Ferguson. We're talking about the Mississippi abortion ban case and her very interesting uh, recent piece in the New York Times about interdependence. You know, uh, you talk about a lot of different things related to abortion in this piece, but and about the Mississippi law and viability, but I really feel that right in the center of it, this is really a piece about what dependence means versus autonomy, what makes a person human. And I think it's really wonderful that you were able to refocus the conversation in this direction. Well, I, that's a lot of my goal because I think people get stuck in conversations about abortion. They feel like they've discussed it before and they're not ready to think about it afresh. And I think there are big questions you know, hidden in the abortion debate that deserve careful consideration. There's no way to have a debate about abortion and who counts as human that doesn't in some way touch on all of us after we've been born. You know, the more we focus on viability or capacity, the more we endanger not just babies, but any 
anyone who is operating with diminished capacity or bigger needs, whether that's the elderly or the chronically ill or the disabled. And so you have to be really careful and not be flip or you know, quick to consider these questions because you're always likely to hurt other people the more willing you are to cast anyone out as not really human. You talk in your piece, um, you say every baby has a demand on its mother and the mother's need creates a just demand on the society around her. And I, I know you've put a lot of thought into this, again, the bigger picture. And recently you also had another piece in the New York Times talking about the Romney, Senator Romney's family plan uh, and the true value of parenting. I know Congressman Jeff Fortenberry of Nebraska has a new bill called the Care for Her Act. So what do you think about some of these public policy approaches? And are you familiar with that Jeff Fortenberry bill? I'm not as familiar with his, though. I'll look it up. But I can tell you what I liked a lot about Romney's is that it was giving aid to parents without making them do a lot to qualify for it. It's not a, this is aid only if you can prove that you held a job recently and therefore you're you know, a good enough person to get it. And it's also not qualified by, well, you can't make too much money and we're going to make everyone document their income, you know, which always excludes poorer families as well who may be less ready to do that. It's just parents need support and it's our job as a society to all chip in. You know, you do it at a personal level by bringing meal trains to people and casseroles to have, they've had, who've had a baby and you do it through your taxes to support people in your community more broadly people you don't know personally and everyone should be doing both we help the people we already know and we kind of rely on those bigger projects to help the people we haven't had the fortune of meeting personally you know i, I want to ask you about i want to talk to you more about that leah about helping people through our taxes and through direct uh, assistance economic assistance but i was thinking we were talking about the the different ways that people are dependent at different times my father's recently become paralyzed. He has ALS mm-hmm. and he requires a tremendous amount of care. And as I move into that world, along with my mother and my siblings of caring for an elderly person who needs care like a baby, I keep thinking to myself, wow, it's so much easier to care for a baby because babies are cute and you you. You know, you, you can pick them up and move them around really easily. And they're so delightful when they're talcum powdered. And that's just not the same uh, when you're taking care of an adult. What a wonderful way to think about dependence as, and, and, you know, the, the dependence of babies, which is such a charming dependence, really. And I think we're more willing to accept it as natural to babies. You know, we're like, well, they're very dependent for a while and then they grow out of it. And we forget that it's also natural to grow into dependence. You know, it's not it's not shocking that lots of people need more help at the end of their life or during a period of illness, but we treat the dependence of a baby as kind of natural and and even sweet, you know, part of knowing someone at this age. And we don't treat the you know, difficulties of age in the same way as something like, this is what it means to love someone who is old. You know, so back to, back to uh, what we were talking about just before that, which is about direct assistance and what, the, what kind of assistance women need. Um, because you mentioned at the end of your piece that it's the task of anti-abortion groups to make a post-Roe world that is as attentive to the needs and dignity of a mother as to those of her child. But, you know, when I first read this, I was it, the first thing that came to my mind was that what's, what makes our world and our culture hostile to, to mothers is not so much a lack of um, material assistance as a lack of fathers, a lack of family, a lack of uh, the understanding that a child is a, is a two-person project, that when a man and a woman are intimate and they, they, they always have the possibility of creating a child, and that creates this, this bond that has to be maintained and respected and, and built up by the law of a man and a, a woman, between a man and a woman and their children. What do you think of that? 
I think that is a huge part of the support every family needs. But, you know, in America, families that do have a father in the picture, a committed father, will still find that that dad has trouble living out the commitment he wants to make because paternity leave is so rare. It made a huge difference for me, you know, that after I had my baby, who I had by C-section, uh, and kind of a surprise to everyone, but we're so glad that that helped her get born safely, that my husband was off and at home with us all the time. And, you know, I couldn't walk easily after I'd had surgery. But for many moms, even if they have a loving father of their child, that dad is back at work. He can't take care of his wife. He can't take care of his baby in the way he naturally wants to. So I think it's a real mix of some of the societal things we need to do to help you know, men grow into good fathers, to help them stick around, to help them expect to stick around. But then for the men who want to, to really support that choice, to treat it as natural that you take care of your wife and your baby and not exceptional or something you can only do if you've really scrounged together your vacation days or enough savings to take a break from your job. Leah, in the piece, again, just back on the viability thing, mm-hmm. you mentioned that viability, of course, is always changing in the eyes of science. And even the pro-choice Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, who gave us Casey, she said that this viability standard is really on a collision course with itself, which is so interesting, of course. But but can you flesh out a bit what you mean when you say it really falls on abortion supporters to come up with a better framework? The viability framework doesn't work. And I would argue that pro-lifers really have kind of put their money where their mouth is in terms of supporting the pregnant women in crisis situations through the 3,000 pregnancy help centers throughout the country. And the pro-life movement has always been very uh, selflessly dedicated to helping women in need. Now, in terms of public policy, it's a slightly different debate. But, but what are some of the ways that abortion supporters might suggest as a better framework? do you think? Well, you know, I think that kind of depends because once, if you are, you know, sufficiently unsettled about viability, then you do face a different question about what is human dignity grounded in? And I don't think there's a better answer than saying it just consists of being a human, whatever your capacities are, and thus it begins at conception. But, you know, I think for folks who are worried about protecting women, then the challenge is on them to say, well, what alternative is left to me? You know, if I don't like that one, what what other answer can I come up with at this point? But I think the point about pregnancy resource centers as part of the pro-life support of pregnant women kind of does point to what's the gap between what we can do for each other personally at the local level. Because I think a good resource center is doing that at the local level. It's helping provide diapers, helping connect people to services that might help them, just providing kind of a kind ear to listen to them. But that's not the same thing as a solution that's really going to say, and we're working for a policy solution where you get a child allowance and guaranteed leave to be with your baby, both the mom and the father. So pregnancy resource centers do good work, but that work can only go so far. And I do want to see more of a commitment from people who are political leaders in the pro-life movement to supporting things that support families and make it easier for them to choose life. Now, again, like what Mitt Romney is doing, rather than just supporting individual people one-to-one, thinking about what changes do we need to make to take care of the vulnerable. Right. And and I do think that conversation is really just beginning as people are trying to imagine a post-Roe world and how we can build a culture of life. And I really appreciate political leaders like Senator Romney and, and Congressman Jeff Fortenberry, who are thinking about how we can be, in terms of policy, in solidarity with pregnant women. And I think that really starts with just talking seriously about what do babies need 
what do women and men need in order to be able to answer their child's need? And I think when you talk frankly about it, it's clear people can't be doing full-time work right after their baby is born, or at least they need the option not to, because a baby is such a totalizing demand on you. A post-real world, when we, imag- when we imagine a post-real world, it sounds like we're saying, well, the, 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 the babies, the unwanted, the babies whose parents are not prepared to receive them are going to keep engendering them and bringing them forth into the world. <laughs> And our society, our, our, the greater society, the, the, um, the society that creates programs and creates uh, foundations and institutions will have to, you know, step up to take care of those children. But aren't we, aren't we forgetting that a post-Roe world where abortion is harder to obtain um, may also result in fewer, in fewer people having sex outside of marriage and in situations where they can welcome children into the world? Because that was, for all of eternity, from the beginning of mankind, the reason sex was regulated at all and put inside marriage. It's so that children, when they came into the world, would have a father to take care of them and a family situation around them. Otherwise, we would just be creating children and dropping them off on that, by the hedgerows like the Romans did. I think it's possible that would happen over time, but I think that that kind of bigger societal change would lag pretty far behind a change in constitutional law. You know, people just don't adjust their behavior that quickly. You know, even now, but most didn't. abortions go to women who are already mothers who are already raising children, you know, not women who have never had this happen before, you know, who aren't familiar with what it's like to raise a child. You know, the biggest constraint that women cite is economic constraints more than not wanting a child at all. You know, many women who receive abortions are open to the idea of having a child. They just feel it's impossible to do right by a child. And they'd rather kind of call that child not to exist than risk having the child and somehow disappointing them or letting them down. But haven't we built a society that in many, many ways is completely inimical, um, just really is set against large families. Um, we have made education so expensive that people can't afford to educate their children. We've, we're, we've, we've created a place where people can't have children, even if they are married, and they can't have more than one or two. Wouldn't exactly. all of this eventually come around to uh, an older, more traditional way of thinking of the family, like a family that welcomes children, a society that, that supports families that have children? I mean, I feel that a post-Roe world could be very positive in many ways, not just fewer abortions. I think it could, but I don't think we'll get there just by inertia. I think it'll take a lot of work to kind of demonstrate what that world could look like and provide people the support they need to transition to that way of thinking about the world and of really, you know, breaking down some of the barriers that make children feel impossible or like a threat um, that people will never be able to take care of the children they have if they have one more. It needs to be believable that, you know, you can welcome another child and it's not going to destroy your life. Mm-hmm. I think there are and folks I who are kind of too frightened time, of that. But yeah, but. Also, to just remind our listeners that we're talking about the Mississippi bill that would only ban abortions after 15 weeks. So the vast majority of abortions happen prior to 15 weeks. So when we talk about the Supreme Court overturning Roe, it means abortion policy would just return to the states, and many states will continue a regime of legal abortion. So we're definitely talking about a long-term vision 
kind of building a culture of life. You know, there are some states, perhaps Utah or Louisiana, that may have more protective legislation, but many, many states would continue allowing abortion through nine months of pregnancy. Well, for instance, I saw recently on the internet, I don't know what I was searching up, but in in D.C., there are, in Washington, D.C., in our nation's capital, abortion clinics that advertise abortion to 36 weeks. You know how old that is? (laughs) That that is one fully formed, perfectly viable, almost 100% of the time baby. They are advertising the destruction of children at 36 weeks. So a post-Roe world would still allow, I mean, in this case of, uh, of the Mississippi law standing, would still allow destruction, horrid destruction of children who are beyond well-formed. Absolutely. And that is the reminder that even though this is kind of an exciting case, you know, if if Mississippi gets to have this law, it doesn't change things nationally immediately. And it, it doesn't affect the vast majority of abortions. You, you say in the piece, and it's so true, that it will it would only almost bring us in line with most developed reasonable countries where abortions can't be obtained electively after 12 weeks. Yeah, it's a lot more common in Europe that kind of the first trimester is the cutoff for legal abortion. And, and upholding the Mississippi law wouldn't bring us there because it wouldn't set that necessarily as the standard for the nation. It would just mean it was an option for states that chose to set that standard. Right. And you also point out that 15 weeks is an arbitrary cutoff as well, of course. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, I'm very curious also, what Mississippi will use as their argument for setting that as their standard. Yeah, you know, because from there's from, nothing that notable that's happening for the baby right then. It's true. From the medical perspective, there's nothing different between 13 and 17 weeks, for instance. <laughs> the baby grows mm-hmm. at 15 weeks. The baby's about four inches long, but he grows very slowly before and after that. There's not much difference between 12 and 15. Yeah, it was really surprising to me when when I was having my daughter, you know, how much development had already happened well before the third trimester and that the third trimester was just lungs getting better at being lungs and the baby getting fatter. But, you know, pretty much everything else was ready to go. Leo, you know, we're almost out of time, but we were hoping to have a moment and I think we have about a minute to ask you, what's it like to work with Bishop Barron on the Word on Fire? Oh, it's a real pleasure. You know, I'm so glad there are so many people who want to learn how to better evangelize their friends, how to offer a really inviting witness of what it means to be a Catholic. And I love that the Word on Fire project always starts beauty, that we can trust that what God has given us to pass on is good. And we're engaged in kind of difficult questions, like the question of abortion, that we're not, we're not going to just argument of others, we always have the opportunity to be generous and inviting because God has given us good things to share. Oh, that's perfect. And that is very word on fire, Leah. I'm really glad that Bishop Barron has you on board because you're obviously a voice for so much that needs to be said in our current cultural climate. So thank you for joining us today on Conversations with Consequences. Thank you for having me on. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specific specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'm very happy to have uh, a repeat offender, Carrie Gress, about an insightful piece she wrote recently at The Federalist about motherhood. Welcome to the show, Carrie. 
Thank you so much for having me. Carrie, uh, you wrote a beautiful piece recently in The Federalist about motherhood. I mean, in general, you write such thoughtful pieces about uh, the culture of life, or actually the life of the culture we live in, I should say, <laughs> because because things... It's not always the culture of life, is it? <laughs> I know, I didn't really mean the culture of life. I mean, because on, on, in your work, you touch upon all these different aspects of what, what makes life beautiful and meaningful. And that's that's really great because there's a lot of things that make life beautiful and meaningful that we, we tend to take for granted or maybe we've forgotten how to create around us. And and I think that you point to these things in your, in your work. Well, thank you. Yeah, I've always been fascinated by the idea of culture and what it is that Catholics can can bring to that. And, um, you know, all these pieces that I feel like we're missing in the culture today, so much of it can really be unlocked by by our faith and, and looking at the material instead of treating it as something that, you know, is beneath us. Um, I, I think we need to use it as an opportunity to really evangelize and build our faith up and, sh- and allow the faith to express itself, um, you know, in very concrete and, and compelling ways. So in this piece in the, that I mentioned uh, in the Federalist, it's called Meet the Flyover Women Pop Culture Ignores. Mm-hmm. What? Who are the flyover women? <laughs> <laughs> that is a great question. Um, so, of course, everybody, most people think of flyover country in, in the United States, that, you know, that there's a certain political... Um, political stance that people on the coast have and then the people in the, in the center of the country are sort of neglected um, and their opinions aren't don't mean very much. Um, and so, you know, this was a term that just came to mind in terms of thinking about so many of us women that our voice is just not heard in any way expressed um, throughout the culture. And I really pinpointed this, you know, very starkly, I think, in the anti-Mary book that I wrote, um, the Anti-Mary Exposed, about how so much of the media has been shifted and and very much directed towards a, a specific narrative. And um, those of us who are the flyover women are, are those whose voices just aren't heard in any way. And, um, you know, I think that one of the starkest examples is just thinking about how many women there are in the culture that we know of, usually by just one name, you know, whether it's Hillary or Oprah or Beyonce or Ellen or, you know, there's a whole list of them. But if you try to make a list of that for conservative women or flyover women, it's very hard to do that. You know, if I throw out Amy, most people are like, who's Amy? Um, you know, Amy Coney Barrett or um, uh, Rachel Duffy or Sarah Huckabee Sanders. You know, all of these women are, are very, are treated very, very poorly um, by the left. And, and they just don't have the presence that, that they would if they were, um, you know, left as celebrities. So anyway, it's, it's just an interesting thing thing to see how much um, we really are neglected and unmarketed to, you know, we just had Pride Month and how many, um, I can't tell you how many emails I got from different companies expressing their pride, you know, maybe it was only one throughout the month, but it was enough, you know, like, why am I getting this from Janie and Jack? You know, it's a children's You know, Carrie, I I literally stopped internet shopping because every time I went on one of my favorite sites, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I had to turn it off immediately because I got upset. When are we yeah. having like um, traditional family month or Catholic, exactly. Catholic families month? <laughs> right. No, I think that's exactly right. And that's the saddest thing, too, is just to see how many of these companies feel like they have to kowtow to this because the culture does promote this one narrative. And, you know, I, I think on the flip side, we can really see how flyover women can make a real difference. I think Nickelodeon is one of the best examples of of that. They um, They had about 1.2 million viewers before they started adding trans and LGTB 
content to their site, and now they're um, they're down to something like three hundred fifty thousand viewers a week. It's a significant drop, and it really shows like what happens when we 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 have a voice somehow. Um, you know, when we can say turn the turn the channel or or uh, you know have a way to sort of back out of this where we're not going to be uh, you know called a bigot or somehow um, you know treated rudely or ignored or whatever. So anyway, it's it's th- that that's really what I wanted to touch on was these women that aren't marketed to. I think so many feel unseen, unheard, and just totally underrepresented in the culture. I'm going to read from your piece. The flyover woman understands her womanhood and motherhood deep in her bones and doesn't see maleness as a goal to achieve or a person to conquer. So correct me if I'm wrong, but what you're saying is that the flyover woman doesn't see a life to make herself equal to the male, not just equal, but equal in her behavior and adopting his customs and his culture and his ways doesn't see that as her goal. Yeah, and and that's the interesting piece is that that really has been the goal. I think um, radical feminism has pushed on us since the really early 1970s, and so much so that their talking points really haven't changed very much. It's just been the exact same kind of messaging, and so you do feel this sense of. In fact, it's always really interesting to me. You know, wherever I speak, there's usually somebody that's saying, "Oh, are you trying to say that women can't do X?" And it's always so interesting to me that it's such a knee-jerk reaction. Of course, women have capacities to do all kinds of things, but that doesn't mean that we ought to or that we want to. If it's really just a matter of competing with men, it shouldn't be the end goal for for our lives. And sadly, that's really, I, I think, made up a lot of the, the way that we're kind of indoctrinated, even as, as young children, as we grow up. And that's really what's behind the, the abortion movement, too, is this desire to sort of have consequence-free sexual relations and be like men and just be able to walk away from them without any any consequences. And that's really what's caused so much devastation in the culture to, of course, the children who are aborted and to the men that are involved, but more specifically to the women. The, the damage that's done there, we know, is obviously really significant in those or some deep wounds that gratefully we've got some resources to help women with that but they are there and can't be ignored and, and that's an, another area that we're seeing obviously the increase in depression and suicide and substance abuse all of these things have been on the rise um, with feminism and not what you would expect you know a diminishment of it so these things are really not making women happy they're just kind of being covered up by the media to make it appear that these are happy women but uh, you know underneath the uh, you know on the un- underbelly of it you can see some that the scars are in, and the damage is really there. So underneath all of this, the premise is that that men are superior to women because why would we yeah. aspire to be like yep. something that we don't think is better than us, right? <laughs> Nobody aspires to something exactly. lower. They aspire to something higher. That's exactly right. And that's a sad thing as we've gone to the point where we can't even define what a woman is in our culture today. You know, there's just so much disagreement about it and there's not really an understanding of, of what womanhood is. And so that's, it's just erased us. In fact, there was just the transgender woman that just won a beauty contest in Nevada. So now we have men beating women in a beauty contest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's all kinds of imagine you know, the imagine the amount women. of hormonal alteration and surgery that goes yeah. into winning oh, a tremendous. beauty contest, a, yes. a woman's beauty contest as a man. I mean, it's a, yeah. that that man yeah. showed tremendous dedication to the cause. <laughs> yeah. Maybe he should have a special <laughs> of conquering women. Yeah, right? of conquering women. But when I think about masculinity and femininity and the way that women are being taught 
to imitate the male, what comes to mind is that the they're being taught to imitate the worst kinds, the no, worst possible exactly right. kinds of male. Because yep. yeah. to be masculine, if you're young, you're, you're raising boys and men like me. If you're a young man or your young, your son, your older, your teenage son or your young man's son, if they're behaving badly, it's not because they're too male. It's because they're not male right. enough. The right. virtues of masculinity, which should be controlling their baser impulses, are not developed, right? Like mm-hmm. protectiveness. Yeah. If, if, if a yeah. young man's taking advantage of women, he's not being very male. He's being yeah. the wrong kinds of male, right? Yeah, no, and I think that that's an absolutely crucial point because it really is the worst of men that they're emulating and trying to emulate. And again, it all stems from just so much brokenness and not having had parental guidance. And you see this dramatically in the in the feminist movement. You have all these women that call themselves the lost girls because they have all these broken relationships, especially with their, their mothers. So it's incredibly sad that, that that's the model is this awful behaving man um, that they wanted to become like. And so mm-hmm. that's what we're seeing in the culture. And, you know, just think of the halftime show from this past Last year, maybe don't think of it because it was so awful. But it's it's clear that women are are being taught to imitate the worst kind, the worst the worst behaving men, right? Not the best behaving men. They're not being taught to be great fathers and great right. you know stalwart defenders of of home and hearth. I have a twenty one year old in college, and sometimes I say things like, "Oh, well, you know, that, that girl would never want to you know to be associated with that." He goes, "Mom, you have no idea what young women are nowadays. They're worse than the guys." And I always yeah. tell him that can't be true, but I think I'm sadly yeah. I think it must be true. And it's all really driven by the culture and the sense of competing with other women. You know, we see this in the contagion of the the transgender issue, too. You know, we've got these girls going as groups, going to go get testosterone hormones pumped into their bodies at, at Planned Parenthood. You know, similar to how they might go in the past to get their ears pierced. So there really is this complete absence of really understanding of what it means to be a woman, what body parts are for, and how they function in what such a way as to make us happy and live in harmony with other people. So it's incredibly tragic how we have devolved to this place where we, you know, we can't even define what a woman is anymore. And if we do, it's it's really just a, a mimicry of the worst of, of men. When I consider the fact that we, that young girls are rejecting their femininity at such high rates and growing higher all the time, I don't blame them in a sense because it's a very hard thing to be a woman in today's culture. Absolutely. And I, it could probably in many respects feels like a way to protect themselves, but also because it is trendy, it just feels like they're part of the group. And we all know how strong of a, of a pull that is when you just want to fit in especially during those awkward years and then you don't have to worry about appealing to the opposite sex it's just just becomes a very different kind of ball game so it's really sad to see what's happening if you're just joining us we're talking to carrie gress she's the author of the theology of the home one of my favorite books and she's also a mother of five but we're talking to her about a recent piece she wrote in the federalist about motherhood you mentioned in your piece that the huffington post uh, has a piece that talks about women wanting to be child free living child free and uh, you know it's interesting you and i both have five children you hear a lot of defenses you know uh, defenses of being child free right it's a choice it's a choice it's a choice it's a great wonderful choice but when you hear about women with large families pretty much everybody says oh that's crazy <laughs> and then you wonder, and I always want to stop and say, wait a, a second, that's a wonderful choice, right? Like if, if, if it's all about choice, why not choosing the large, delightful family? Yeah. No, and I think that it, it is because, large, largely because the, the family and our life really is has been, the goal seems to be more about having fun. In fact, I, I remember being on an airplane once I was going to a speaking event and I sat next to this businessman and he said, how many kids do you have? And at that point, I only had four. And, and he said, oh, well, that must be fun. You know, with a lot of sarcasm in his voice. And, you know, I just, it was one of those things where I just thought, sat there and thought about it. I was like, this doesn't have anything to do with fun. 
you know, and of course I didn't say any of this at the time because I just had to really think about it. You know, it was just an amazing response to me. Like, this isn't my goal in life isn't fun. It's really to to live out God's will for my life and in that will be joy and incredible happiness. And um, it's a sad thing that that's really what it has been, you know, reduced to. And you see this in the HuffPo article. I mean, the HuffPo Post art piece is really striking because, of, first of all, they, they make the point that it seems like a moment, a new moment for women who are childless. And of course, my point was, you know, this is what we've been, they've been saying for 50 years. Most women are not being lauded because of the families that they have. It's because of their careers. So it really has been a, a, a childless kind of environment that we've been living in. Anyway, you know, it's sort of accidental if you have children or not. But I, I think beyond that, you know, just to even read it, it's incredibly tragic. There's one, um, I think it's actually a man speaking. I have to go back and, and see, but I think the voice was a male talking about, you know, the, the, the joyful life that he and his wife have because they don't have children. And, you know, his description is just tragic, um, you know, in terms of her able to get high and watch movies together. <laughs> How <laughs> joyful. You sound like a 13-year-old. <laughs> exactly. You're sort of stuck in this sort of 13-year-old mindset. You know, even the, the fact that, uh, you know, talking to people that do have children, the reality is is painted in that picture, painted in that article to look like, you know, those people are just really tired, even though they say they love having kids. They just look exhausted. It's definitely very one-sided and, and tragic kind of, of piece to read because it just shows where, where the culture's really gone. And it's it, also you know, very, it's it. also very tragic when you consider that people will be will have no one to take care of them. All these childless yeah. people, when they start yeah. getting very sick and in need of care, yeah. are yeah. going to be at the mercy of the state and whatever the state can, yeah. you know, whatever warehouse the state can put them in. Yeah. And it's interesting, too. There was one um, article I read about a year ago where the woman was talking about, you know, I don't have parents anymore. They've died and I never had children. And so it's this strange, uh, you know, all of her relationship and she didn't have siblings. So all of those relationships through which we know each other naturally, you know, an aunt or an uncle or sister or brother or daughter, like she didn't have any of those left in her life. And, uh, you know, it's a remarkable thing to sort of even not be able to understand yourself through that prism of, of relationships as well. Well, this all comes from our culture uh, elevating autonomy over yeah. interdependence, would you say? I think you're absolutely right. No, I think that's exactly right. That That's really the thrust of it. And having fun as an autonomous person <laughs> in those two pieces, I think. Again, getting back to that really bad model of, of, uh, of men from the 1960s and 70s that we've been trained to, to model our lives after. And yet nobody would want a father like that, right? A, a father who's completely yeah. autonomous and doesn't has no thought for the interdependence that he creates with his child and his wife. Yep. No, it's it's incredibly sad. And what about the rom? You point out something about the romance languages and how they oh, yeah. how they refer to the unique beauty and gifts of women. Yeah, you know, this has been a really fun thing that I've been doing a lot of research on. It's just looking at you know if a culture can't define women, then how do we define women? And going back to the earliest, earliest ancient mythology and whatnot, and it certainly mimics itself or expresses itself in, in Catholicism as well, is this idea of women carrying things. And um, we see this with the way in Romance languages, things that are containers are usually feminine. Um, so in French, the, the ocean is feminine. Even the word for the church, the main part of the church is called the nave, which is what represents, uh, you know, as a word for ship. So there's all this incredible language, you know, related to, to vessels and whatnot. So I, I think that that's been just an amazing way to start looking at who women are. And, you know, much of what we do really is 
carrying others, but not just for the sake of carrying them, but for to help improve their, their lives. Edith Stein, St. Edith Stein has this great quote about how women are a shelter for others to, to flourish in. And you can see that in, in our wombs. You, we've got hips, we've got breasts to nurse them, we've got these arms that are bent slightly so we can cradle a baby more readily, you know, much more easily than a man can. So it's just a beautiful thing to sort of start figuring out. We have these things for a purpose, but we not only just biologically, I mean, certainly that's an important piece of it. And that was my run regret with this piece um, and the Federalist was they took out a part where I talk about spiritual motherhood from the, the, what they published. But I think that on, a, on an emotional and spiritual and, and intellectual level, women have an amazing capacity to carry others as well, whether it's in our prayers or thinking of the needs of others and compassion, you know, all of these kinds of things that, that we do on a kind of an abstract level because we're, we're so relational. These are really important things that all women are called to, whether or not we become biological mothers or not. And I, I think that that's just been an amazing piece to look into and sort of explore. But how do we understand what womanhood is in a very beautiful and, and compelling way instead of just being confused by it? Well, Carrie, you, in fact, are doing so much to carry that <laughs> ball forward, to understand well, ourselves yeah. in, in a way that's that's authentic, that's human, that that creates a, beautiful, a more beautiful society and a more beautiful home. So I think I think you're doing a wonderful yeah. job at that, Carrie. And, and I thank you for being on the show with us again. And to our listeners, make sure to catch Carrie Gress's writing at theologyofhome.com, The Federalist, and it's carriegress.com. Well, please do that, and thank you, Carrie, for joining us. My pleasure. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday as he sends out the apostles for the first time to proclaim his gospel, instructions that are meant to guide the way we share in that same continuous mission of the salvation of the world. Jesus' words to us this week can be broken down into four simple parts. To whom the Lord gives his mission, what message his missionaries are called to proclaim, how he wants them to deliver this message, and to whom he wants them to bring it. The first part is whom Jesus commissions. I'd hope that by this point, almost 60 years after the Second Vatican Council, everyone knows the answer. It's not just to bishops, priests, religious, brothers and sisters, or missionaries. It's to all his disciples, each one of us. By our baptism, we're called to share in Christ's own prophetic mission. This universal mission grew in stages. Jesus first trained the twelve, as we'll see in the gospel this Sunday, and sent them out. Then he trained seventy and gave them the same instructions. Before he ascended into heaven, he instructed five hundred on the mountainside and told them, Go to the whole world and proclaim the gospel, baptizing and teaching them to carry out everything I have commanded you. That mission continues down to this day, and Jesus wants us, in some sense needs us, to carry it on. Second question is, what are we called to preach? We're not sent out with our own message. We're not commissioned with the instruction to wing it. We're sent out as ambassadors of Christ with his message, same message he preached. St. Saint Mark writes that as soon as Jesus returned from his 40-day fast in the wilderness, he came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
Jesus states a fact and gives a command. The gospel is at hand, therefore change your life and base it on the gospel. When Jesus sends out the twelve, as we see in Sunday's gospel, it's with the same message. St. Mark says, they went off and preached repentance. Jesus gave the same message to all the disciples before his ascension. Repentance and forgiveness of sins, he said, is to be proclaimed in my name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. The fundamental message of Jesus, which he passed on to his disciples in that great sending forth that continues right down to this upcoming Mass, is one of a need for conversion and the great news that God will help us convert. The central and fundamental message of Christ, as the great Christian apologist C.S. Lewis used to write very succinctly, is twofold. First, it involves the truth about us, that we're not the people we should be, that we're sinners in need of conversion, not just once, but continuously. And then second, the crux of the good news, salvation is possible for us through the forgiveness of sins. The very name of Jesus means God saves. Jesus sent out his first disciples with that message, that good news, the call to turn away from sin and live in God's kingdom. Likewise, he sends each of us with that message, as sheep in the midst of wolves, the context of a culture we know is in great need of conversion. To be credible missionaries, though, we first have to enflesh the message. It's no surprise that among his first missionaries, Jesus chose some great sinners. Peter, whose first words to the Lord were, Depart from me, O Lord, from a sinner. Matthew, a hated tax collector, used to sin by shaking down his own people. Later, Paul, who once terrorized, tortured, and presided over the killing of Christians. They were able to preach that conversion from sins is possible, and that God has indeed come to reconcile sinners, because they were living testimonies of the salvation Christ had accomplished in them. The Lord calls us to preach this same message, not just with our lips, but with our life. That leads us directly to the third point, how Jesus wants us to deliver that message. He gives several specifics in the gospel. St. Mark says, He began to send them out two by two and instructed them to take nothing for their journey but a walking stick, no food, no sack, no money in their belts. They were, however, to wear sandals, but not a second tunic. Jesus' point was not to give the church a particular dress code to last until the end of time, but to form his disciples so that their message would be credible. First, he wanted us to preach the gospel just as he himself was accustomed to deliver it. Jesus lived by the very instructions he was giving us. Second, he wanted to cultivate in us the virtues of the kingdom so that we would be able to preach this message not just with words but with our whole bearing. We were to show that we take seriously what we announce. The presence of a God who tells us not to worry about what we're to eat, drink, wear, or where we are to sleep. Because God knows what we need before we ask it and cares for us more than he cares for the lilies of the field and the birds of the sky. By telling us, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave, he was instructing us to be grateful for hospitality given and not constantly be looking for a better deal. By mentioning whatever place does not welcome you, Leave there and shake the dust off your feet in testimony against them. He's teaching us not to be weighed down with bad memories or nurse wounds from one place to the next. But if we experience rejection, and we occasionally will, he wants us to let it go, to have a fresh start, and not to have the good news of great joy masked by the sadness of previous difficulties. By sending us out two by two, he was also helping us to learn how to grow in love in our missionary journey. Pope St. Gregory the Great, 1,400 years ago, taught that the reason why Jesus sent the apostles and disciples out in peers was so that they could learn how to love each other, to be patient with each other, 
to learn how to forgive each other every day. In other words, to show others the gospel, not just announce it. Most of the disciples Jesus sends out in peers are married. And they have the mission by their simplicity of life, their dependence on God, and their acceptance of his providential will to give testimony to their families, neighborhoods, cities, and towns that the good news is real and has filled them with joy. He wants married couples to proclaim by their joy the source of their joy, by their love for each other, the one who loved them first and commanded them to love like him, by their poverty of spirit, that their treasure is in God, and so forth. Likewise, the Lord wants each of us to incarnate the message we proclaim. If we hope to be credible ambassadors of Christ, we need to practice what we preach. That brings us to the fourth and last question. To whom are we sent to preach the message? We're sent to proclaim it to the whole world, beginning with the one we look at the mirror each day, and then after we've heard that message and tried to put it into practice, to those with whom we come into regular contact. We're called to proclaim the good news of repentance and forgiveness of sins to our family, friends, colleagues at work, fellow students, even when the occasion arises, to religious priests, bishops, and the Holy Father. In some ways, this mission to go to the lost sheep we know is more challenging than going to dangerous missionary territories overseas because it requires profound conversion since those close to us can most readily see if our actions contradict the words we proclaim. They'll know right away if we've put into action in our own life the message we're announcing. We can't get away with subtle arguments and beautiful words. We have to love them to conversion. We have to radiate the salvation we've received from Christ and his zeal for soul. At the same time, however, those close to us are the ones to whom, with God's help, we can be the most effective instruments God has to bring to them the message of conversion and salvation. Why? We know them. We know what buttons to push and not to push far better than any foreign missionary might. If they're away from the practice of the faith or have never practiced, then we'll have better access to them than any priest, nun, or missionary. In involving us in his mission, Jesus wants to give us the joy of seeing his salvation dawn not just in others, but in those we know, and to become the greatest benefactors they'll ever have, since we are the ones called by God to bring them the greatest treasure. The same Jesus who sent out the apostles in the gospel comes to be with us in our churches this Sunday. He comes so that we might enter into his kingdom and be strengthened to go forth to announce his kingdom, filled with the hope that God with us is still with us, and that if we and others repent and believe, if we draw close to him in the sacraments, then we will experience the fulfillment of the great promise of the kingdom that will know no end. Jesus come to share with us his own saving mission. Let us pick up that baton and march onward. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com. And you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy. And you go with our prayers. 